For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So now, our Father and our God, we pray earnestly and hopefully that you would meet with us in your word and that you would speak to us and that you would renew us and that you would restore us and that you would give us joy and life and peace and help and presence. Lord, we need you. We need you. And so we are crying out to you, Lord. Help us. Meet with your people, speak to your people, guide your people, teach your people. Help us, Father, we pray, help us. And now would these words drive us to you in a way that we would find life and joy and peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. So good to be with you all this morning. If you haven't already, please take your Bible and turn over to the book of Exodus chapter 23, where Austin, or not Austin, Ben, sorry, just read for us. Um, and if you're our guest this morning, let me try to get you up to speed. We at Redeemer are working our way through the book of Exodus. This is the primary way that we approach the scriptures, and, and you're with us here in, in the middle of chapter 23. So there are two main events in the book of Exodus, two main events in the book of Exodus. The first is in the first half of the book where God's people, Israel, are in bondage and slavery and unable to freely worship and serve God the way that he created them to and desires for them to. And the definitive moment is God stepping into history, tearing down a regime and delivering and freeing his people that they could serve him. So Israel's been freed. They've been delivered. They are out of Egypt. The second event, and by the way, if you're addicted to action movies, like the first part, like that's for you, right? I mean, it's moving. Lots of stuff's happening. The second part is God giving his law to his people. And if you're addicted to action movies, you're like, pace, come on, come on, let's get moving. But what's going on in, in chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 is God's giving his law to his people. 
And, and, I, and I want to compel to you that this part is just as important as the first part. See, in the first part, God got his people out of Egypt. They've been freed. They've been delivered. They are in Egypt no more. But what's going on in the second part is God's getting Egypt out of them. You see, they were shaped by 400 years in another land. They were shaped by 400 years of other gods and 400 years of working under the hands of others. And now the Lord's said, you're mine. You're out, and I'm going to reach down and lovingly get Egypt out of you because there's a better way. It's my way. There's a more joyful way. It's my way, okay? That's what we're in. And so all these obscure things, like the things I left for Austin last week, if a man seduces a virgin, if there's a sorceress, if a man lies with an animal, if you boil a goat in its mother's milk, all these crazy things that we're like, what are you talking about? Well, we don't wrestle with that. Anybody boil a goat in its mother's milk? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, we don't wrestle with that. But here's the thing. Israel did. They were in the middle of people who did. And what God is doing is not being obscure, but he's lovingly saying, this is the way, let's walk in it. He's lovingly saying, come follow me on the better path. So we have to work a little hard to find our path in these things, but it's worth it. So here's our parallel. The New Testament parallel is, we all are born into sin and death. We're enemies of God. We're rebels. We're enslaved. And the, the way out is just Jesus. We've been delivered. So if you're here today exploring Christianity, exploring the faith, wondering how you might fit into all of this, the first step toward God is a step toward Jesus. The only step into the faith is a step toward Jesus. And let me just go ahead and get this out here. Our greatest joy today would be to help you make a step toward Jesus. So at the conclusion of this service, some of our staff members will be at a little round table out there. They would love to talk to you what it might look like to take a step toward Jesus. If you really need to have that conversation right now, just, just get up, go on. Like there's somebody out there, okay? Also on that table, there are some resources for adults and for kids to help you take a step toward Jesus. Because it all starts there, okay? God got us out of sin and death through the blood of his son, Jesus. But here's the thing. Just like God didn't leave Egypt to figure it out in the wilderness or to figure it out in the promised land, he hasn't left us to figure it out either. He's going to work in us to make us more like him. The big Bible theology word for that is sanctification. And the, the word of the Lord and the law of the Lord is intended to guide us toward the desires of the Lord. And that's, what, that's the journey that we're all on here in this life. Now, that's the warm-up sermon. Now for the real sermon. This particular passage is going to show us this. That God intended to create within Israel a culture of worship and a culture of focusing on the Lord. 
And in a key piece of creating this culture of worship and this culture of focusing on the Lord was creating habits that drove them to the Lord. So what's in this passage are a series of ongoing habitual practices among the people that drive the people toward the Lord. So before we dive into the text, a thought experiment. It's not every day I bring you an opening illustration, so welcome to Redeemer, okay? I want you to think about the happiest moment of your life. Think about that. Some of y'all are like smiling. I've never seen that before. What do you do with that happy moment? You relive it, don't you? You think about it over and over and over again, don't you? Why? Because it's joyful. Because it feels good. And because why? You don't want to forget it, right? God's hardwired us to use remembrance to stir us. Like that's a good thing. That's how the Lord made us. Now, think about a dear loved one that we that you've lost to death. What do we do? We fight to remember, don't we? We don't want to forget. We don't want to forget the love and the contribution and the life that we shared with that person, right? So we replay it in our minds like a movie over and over and over again. I'm not trying to make everybody sad this morning. I'm two for two here. But um, what I'm trying to show us is that God made us to remember stuff that matters. And when I said this sermon's entitled Ongoing Remembrance, if you thought about studying for a math test, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is remembering what matters. And the Lord who is in the heavens and the Lord who doesn't physically and visibly dwell in our presence has hardwired us to be shaped by what we remember. And what he's saying in Exodus 23 is, I want to hardwire you to remember me. I want to put in your weekly and annual routine remembrance of me because that is how you will stay focused on me and find the path to faithfulness. And I think this is in the Bible because that's how God made us. So what we're going to see are some ways that the Lord intended to drive this intentional, ongoing remembrance home in the life of his people so that they would remember him and his deliverance and his ways and his continual care. And I can tell you this, if you're in Christ today, the Lord wants you to remember him and his deliverance and his ways and his continual care. 
So let's look at the passage and see how it shows us this. So the first point, if you want to take notes this morning, is keeping focus. Keeping focus. And by the way, I'm using words like focus and reorientation today, not because I'm trying to be business savvy. I'm not. I'm trying to use words that we don't usually use in church world to catch our attention a little bit, okay? So keeping focus. The main point of this passage is that God wants his people to stay focused on him, his past deliverance, his ways, and his continual care. And I take that from verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So what's the main drive of this passage? It's this. The Lord wants his people to pay attention to all that he said and and not drift toward other gods. He wants his people to pay attention, to remember all that he has said to give it full attention and give it focus, to build your lives around it, and to fight the drift toward other gods. So pay attention to all that I've said. The Lord is saying, keep focused on me by hearing and receiving and believing all that I have said. Now, here's the beautiful truth. The Lord has providentially seen fit to make sure that we have as the most published book in the history of the world, all that he has said. It's available to us. In every privatized form you can imagine, it's available to us. Paper copies, study Bible copies, hardback copies, softback copies, iPhone, Android. Windows, all the platforms, it's readily available to us. So the question is, will we take it seriously enough to hear and give full attention to and give full focus to what the Lord has shown us about himself in his word? It's important to the Lord that the people of the Lord pay attention to all that he has said. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, which means God hasn't told us everything that he could tell us. But the things that he has revealed are for you and your children's children that you will keep them, keep all the words of this law. So it is the desire of the Lord that the people of the Lord would focus on the Lord by taking his word seriously. Now, guys, some of you are like, I got it, I got it, Bible, Bible, Bible. But that also speaks to how we approach the Bible. Sometimes I feel like um, we're too smart for our own good. And um, we approach the Bible like a supercomputer that, that just needs some more data points. You know, I just need some more data points so I can have all the answers and have it all figured out and defend everything and have everything very black and white and no shades of gray. And I just need certainty. And the like, like, okay, the Bible does speak truth and truth does give certainty. But the purpose of the Bible is to help us meet the Lord. 
It's not to get bigger brains that can do better on Bible quizzes. So will we approach the word to meet the God of the word? And will we approach the word to hear what God actually says? And will we approach the word to have what God says reorient who we are? Because the Lord says, pay attention to all that I've said. So keeping focus on the Lord flows through first paying attention to all that he said. Second, it flows through fighting the drift toward other gods. He says, make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now, this one's a little more challenging for us. So the people of Israel have been in Egypt where there were all kinds of other gods, right? And the temptation was for them to worship other gods. Lest you think we're reading too much into that. In their journey out of Egypt, every time they hit tension, hardship, threat, what was the first response? Let's go back to Egypt, right? Let's let's just go back there. Because this God, this Yahweh, maybe not doing it for us, okay? So there was a temptation to drift toward other gods. And so the Lord is saying, make no mention of the other gods, Don't even talk about them. Don't even consider them. Well, what would they be considering? The allure of what the other gods had to offer. So the Lord says, make no mention of other gods. Stay singularly devoted to me. Now, In a secular age and in a secular place, this is a little bit more difficult for us. I mean, any of you really struggle with like, um, well, let me just say it this way. Like the idea of household idols or um, carvings of God that we might bow down and worship is not something that most Americans wrestle with freely. Most of us grew up in a westernized, Christianized kind of environment, and coming to faith didn't really mean repudiating other gods. Now, for some of us, it did, and and for those of us for whom coming to faith meant repudiating other gods, this is very clear. Stay focused on the Lord. But most of us, that's not our experience, and so we hear this, and we go, oh, well, I'm not tempted to any other god. I've never wrestled with my allegiance to the one true God. Maybe not on an intellectual, philosophical level, but on a heart level, yes, yes, we have. Because when we see the allure of what those who are not followers of Jesus have, and we wonder if their God could give us that, we're wrestling with the desire for other gods. And what the Lord says is that's just a losing battle. Purge it. Stop it. Don't entertain it. Don't make space for it. Stay singularly devoted in thought and in word on who God is and what God has done and how he's delivered his people. So the first point, keep focused on God, 
God's deliverance, God's ways, and his continual care. So specifically, how will Israel be exhorted to fight for this type of purity of devotion to Jesus or to Yahweh? That leads to our second point. The second point is regular reorientation. Regular reorientation. And that, you know, I'm a preacher, so it's got to be alliterated. It's got to sound punchy. But here's all I mean. What God gives in this passage are three categories of action, of actions, of activities that are intended to force his people to stop and consider him. He's giving three categories of activities that are intended to force his people to stop and remember him. In a busy, fast-paced, distracted world. By the way, if you're not aware, that's where you live, okay? Busy, fast-paced, and distracted. One of the words we most need to hear is stop and remember the Lord. And by the way, I think that means literally stop. I, now, ladies, I hear rumors that you can multitask. I hear rumors that you can like pray and do the dishes at the same time. And if the Lord really allows that, then you, you do you, okay? But men, the other half, stop means stop, okay? The only way we can focus on the Lord is to stop and to focus. And so the Lord's putting some, some ritual habits, some ongoing events that would force the people to look to the Lord. Now, before we look at these, I want, can, can I give you a challenge here? Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to, as we're talking these things through, I want to challenge you to think about every you ought to statement you've heard as a Christian and try to, you know, like you ought to go to church regularly or you ought to read the Bible regularly or you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. Like take, try to take every one of those and rework it through this grid of God introducing habits that direct us to himself. So let's look at the ones he gives them. The first habit is rest for the land. So they don't even possess land yet, but he's promised them a land. They're moving toward a land. And he says, when you get there, here's what I want you to do. For six years, this is verses 10 and 11. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather its yield. That, that's, that's good farming right there, right? Like the Lord's given you a land, take care of it, sow it, tend it, reap it, harvest it, Okay. But in the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So the Lord says, in the seventh year, I want you to treat your land differently. Don't work it. Don't till it. Don't sow. Don't harvest. Now, anybody that's ever set foot on a farm in this room is shouting, Say what? Like, this is how we live. This is how we eat. This is how we find provision. 
So why would the Lord want his people on the seventh year to not work the land? For 365 days, you wake up and you're reminded that your life and your provision and your status and your place comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. He's building in a habitual reminder. All of you with kids, can you imagine like your four-year-old just wearing you out for a year? Daddy, why didn't you um, plant some crops this year? Daddy, why did you let all those weeds grow? Daddy, why is the fence row covered up? Daddy, are you going to cut those trees down? They're getting in my way. And you know what you get to say 10 times a day for 365 days? Son, we're not doing that this year. A way to remember that it's God who provides for us. It's God who cares for us. It's God who delivers us. It's God who redeems us. It's God who gives us hope. The Lord is saying, be, use your land, which I'm about to give you, and steward it in such a way that you treat it differently than the nations would treat it, as a way to show you that it's I who provide for you and care for you. Now, if you really want to nerd out and go into the deep weeds here, pun intended, what you will see is that there's a lot of discussion about exactly how that was this supposed to play out. Like, was the whole nation of Israel supposed to celebrate the seventh year together? I think no. We'll to that in just a minute. Or was I, as a farmer, supposed to take all of my land and use all of my land, like all of my land is in the seventh year at one time. I'm not sure. That's vague and unclear. Or could I take my land and divide it up into different areas and each area, so an area of my land could be in the seventh year at one time. We're not exactly certain, but either way, the principle is I'm going to take what is central to your familial way of life, and I'm going to Use it to reorient you to remember me, to not forget that I'm the God who made you, and I'm the God who redeemed you, and I'm the God who provided for you. Now, he, he gives some provisional fruit of this in verse 11. He says, we're going to do this that the poor of your people may eat. So that field that you're not cultivating, what it produces, the poor are going to come and they're going to eat from and the animals, they'll be able to graze in that. So get what's going on here. In the way that the people of Israel will handle their land, it'll be routinely, it will routinely drive the landowner to remember it's the Lord who provides for us. And it will routinely drive the poor and the impoverished who don't have land to remember that it's the Lord who provides for us. For the landowner, his remembrance comes through a step back. For the poor, his remembrance comes through literal provision of a field that he wouldn't have had access to unless the Lord gave it to him. But the Lord is driving into the culture of his people a habit of remembering. Remembering him. Now, 
Finding some tangible takeaway here is a bit challenging for us. This land restriction is not something that's brought up or, or, or carried on into the New Testament. Frankly, if you take Old Testament studies seriously, it's not really something that Israel was very faithful with either. Um, and there's lots of fascinating things you can chase down there. But I think what we take from this is, this was a, a, a law provision for the owners of land to, to steward that provision in a way that exalted the Lord and celebrated his provision. So I think I would just say to us, lately, so where do we find a connection there? I, I think our connection to this provision would be, how do we use the stewardships that the Lord has given us to celebrate and highlight God's faithfulness and God's goodness, not just for us, but for those under our care? I know that's a little bit vague, but I think we're left to think and pray and ask for wisdom. The second habit is rest for the people on a weekly basis. This is in verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. That's the command. That should sound very familiar because that's right out of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. The Lord actually roots it in creation when he says, I made the heaven and earth on six days, and on the seventh day I rested. I called the seventh day blessed, and I made it holy. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to have you structure your week in such a way that on one day you don't work. On one day you rest. One day you seek after me. Now this, because of the history of the West being rooted in Christianity, doesn't seem that foreign to us because the weekend is kind of just shaped in how we think about things. But, but go back to being a, a Canaanite farmer here. Like, this is, this is mad talk. Like, like, it's just as ludicrous as the seventh year, right? Like, like we make our way by working hard. The Lord says, no, I'm going to build into your week a rhythmic habit that says you make your way because God provides. You make your way because God blesses. So the Lord says, work for six days and rest on the seventh. And he, he prescribes some results that are a little bit unique. He says that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So notice what the Lord's saying. He says, hey, I'm going to give you land. You're going to be a landowner, and you're going to steward that land and that ownership in such a way that even your servants and the sojourners among you will have rest before me. So it's as if the Lord's saying, if, if you don't Sabbath, then you're preventing those who work for you, those under your care, likewise from Sabbathing. And so in this once a week day of rest, the owner is reminded it's the Lord who provides for us. And the poor and the servants and the aliens are reminded it's the Lord who provides for us. 
So the Lord is saying, I am going to build into your weekly rhythm a habit that forces you to remember me and look to me and follow me. Now, what do we do with this command for weekly rest? It's in the Ten Commandments. It shows up here in Exodus 23, and it's going to show up a few chapters later. So this will actually get its own sermon here in a few weeks. But for today, what do we do with this? First of all, let's recognize that this weekly rhythm is intended to remind us, I need God. And I need God's provision, and protection, and help in my life. I am not in and of myself strong and powerful enough to provide all that I need or to give myself true and lasting joy. I need God. Second, this is intended to drive home in us, I need rest. I need rest. Rest focused on God. Third, this is intended to drive home that those in my family and those under my care and those under my persuasion need God and need rest focused on God. Fourth, this drives us to aspire to more than money and accumulation and new possession, but to aspire to walk with God. Now, it's, it's fun to pick on um, modern Christian companies and, you know, joke about Chick-fil-A being Jesus chicken and all those kind of things. But, but I actually think, like, let's be kind. I think Chick-fil-A is a positive example here of, of, of what I'm, I'm driving at. And if you own a business and it's open on Sunday, I'm, no condemnation from me. Don't, don't take that, okay? But look at Chick-fil-A. You had a Christian who said, I need God, I need rest, and I'm going to create a company that provides that space to all my employees. I'm going, to provide, I'm going to create a company that provides that space to all who work under my care. That's a commendable step of saying, I'm going to take this um, Sabbath principle seriously. So if you want to take it seriously, I think I would just push it this way. Find a rhythm, a weekly rhythm. That's just a good hipster word for habit. Find, find a weekly rhythm of rest and worship in your life. Find a weekly rhythm of rest and worship in your life. That might look different for all of us. But I can tell you, we need God and we need rest. I want more, Jamie. Good, come back in a few weeks. We'll be there again. Okay, third, the passage offers a series of annual celebrations that are intended to cause God's people to stop and look to the Lord. It offers a series of three annual celebrations that cause God's people to stop and look to the Lord. These are found in verses 14 through 19. 
We're told of these three annual feasts that all males are required to appear. Women and children are also invited, but by requiring all males to appear, that means all families will be participating in these remembrances. Everyone will bring an offering to the Lord. Not only will everyone come and participate, but everyone will bring an offering to the Lord, which means our, participate, our participation will drive us to consider the Lord. These feasts, and this is found particularly in verses 18 and 19, these feasts will not duplicate pagan rituals of other religions. So the, the thing about blood and yeast, the thing about burning the fat, the thing about not boiling a goat in its mother's milk, those were all practices in Canaanite false worship. And so the Lord, again, as I said earlier, he's not being obscure. He's saying, just know we're not going to do that because that's not honoring to me and that's not what I desire for my people. As a theologian Douglas Stewart says, God is saying to his people, we're not going to take the rituals of other religions and put a nice Yahweh twist on them and make them part of Israel. We're going to be distinct as the Lord has commanded. So what are these three festivals? The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second is the Feast of Harvest. And the third is the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the annual remembrance of the Passover and the Exodus event, which has already happened here in Exodus, and the Lord has made clear. We will remember every year that it was God who delivered us from Egypt. It was God who saved us. It was God who provided our way out. Of note, it was during this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, this remembrance of the Passover, that in the New Testament, Jesus would often appear in Jerusalem in his life and ministry. And in the final, the final act of his earthly ministry, Jesus would enter Jerusalem, would celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples, would die on a cross, would be buried, and would rise again as the people of God were gathered to remember his saving power. Second festival, the Feast of the Harvest. Some six weeks after the Passover, celebrating the first fruits from the field. So as the first fruits are coming in, we're going to have the Feast of the Harvest, and we're going to go to festival to celebrate that it's God who provides for his people. Of note, in the New Testament, it's during this celebration where Pentecost occurs and the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon the followers of Jesus. Third, the Feast of Ingathering. This would be at the end of the agricultural season. It would be moving toward fall slash winter. Um, this would be a, 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 another remembrance that God has provided for his people through another year. And we're going to stop and remember his provision. In the New Testament, this is often called the Feast of the Booths. And so as you, take, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the, the tellings of the life of Jesus, so much of the action happens when God's people are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate one of these three feasts. I don't think that's accidental. Also, I don't think it's just opportunistic, like, oh, everybody was there. But the Lord's revealing things about himself through his son while the people are there to 
look to the Lord. There's something uniquely divine in how all of that is unfolding. So the Lord is, is saying, I'm going to give you a habit, not to make you busier, not to, t- to distract you, but to frankly cause you to stop and look to me. We're going to let our land rest on the seventh year. We're going to rest on the seventh day. And we are going three times a year to gather the people to celebrate who God is. That pushes us to the final point, our focus. How do we glean from this? How do we glean from this? First, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. None of this does anything for us looking to Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. He is our exodus. He is our Passover lamb. He is our redeemer. He's our Lord. He's our life. He's our hope. We look to Jesus. The first step toward God is a step to Jesus. The only first step into faith is a step toward Jesus. The only first step toward Christianity is a step toward Jesus. And we look to Jesus. As those who have looked to Jesus, who are clinging to Jesus, who do belong to Jesus. Second, we orient our lives around the word of God. We orient our lives to pay attention to all that God has spoken. Third, we fight against the love of what, quote, other gods might provide for us. Fourth, we look for ways to seek remembrance of God's provision. Fifth, we take seriously this invitation to weekly rest in the Lord. Sixth, we find ways annually to slow down and stop and look to the Lord. The church calendar and our culture give us these, some of these. They're not the only ones, but we can take the Advent season, the season where we stop and remember Christ coming to earth, and we use that as a way to focus on the Lord's provision. We can take Holy Week. We can take the, the, the season where we stop and remember Christ's life and ministry and death and resurrection as a way to annually reorient ourselves to the Lord, and there are, are others. And then seventh, we take all the commands of the New Testament, and we try to see them as gifts of the Lord to cause us to stop and look to him. And so as I've been thinking and praying this week, there, this could be a long laundry list, and maybe you can have that conversation in your community group, but three come rushing to mind when I think about commands in the New Testament that are, that are intended to cause us to stop and remember the Lord. Command one, The command of weekly worship. Don't neglect to gather together with the people of God. What are we doing here today? We're here for singing? Mm, Not exactly. We're here for a pep talk? I'd really, really, really let you down. If so, what, what are we here for? We're here 
to be pushed and pulled and drugged to remember who God is and his goodness and his kindness and his faithfulness. Please don't show your hands, but any of you not want to be here this morning? Yeah, I see those hands. Okay. Perhaps we're too sad. Perhaps we hurt too deeply. Perhaps we're tired and we're weary. Perhaps we're just broken. Perhaps we're struggling with sin and we're ashamed. Either way, this is where we need to be because together the Lord's saying, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And we're saying, hey, come on, he'll give us rest. This gathering is a habit of focus on the Lord. Second, one that comes to my mind, and I'm not just trying to be good preacher man, but I've thought a lot about giving this week. Um, I don't own any land that I can figure out how to let be fallow. I think I own about 250 square feet of grass um, and like two trees that don't produce anything. But I have thought a lot about giving. You know, the Lord's provision comes to me through a direct deposit once a month. And to my wife, twice a month. What do I do? And I think these scriptural commands to give are an opportunity to stop and remember the Lord's provision and in thankfulness for that, give some of that to his work. I also should admit to you that I have my giving to this congregation up on auto draft, which means the whole pause and remember thing has to be a little bit more intentional. You know, if you had to go to the bank and get out some bills and count them, like something works there, but I digress. And then the third thing that's just shouting at me as I think about this this week is, is the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, as often as you do this, take this bread, take this cup, you remember me and what I've done for you. So here at Redeemer, we take the Lord's Supper every week, not because it's cool, and not because it tastes good, and not because we're hungry, but because we need to be driven to our need for Jesus. And when we take the bread and the cup, what we're saying is, he's provided. He provided in himself for us. Praise his name. So congregation, I want us to go looking for these habits that will cause us to stop and remember the Lord. So, Father, would you take these words, and as much as they are true and right and good, would you drive them into your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.